Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Isaiah 29, verses 1 to 14. Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will beseech Ariel, she will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. I will encamp against you all around. I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. Brought low, you will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. But your many enemies will become like fine dust, the ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. Then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her and her fortress and besiege her, will be as it is with a dream, with a vision in the night. As when a hungry man dreams that he is eating, but he awakens and his hunger remains. As when a thirsty man dreams that he is drinking, but he awakens faint with his thirst unquenched, so it will be with the hordes of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, read this, please, he will answer, I can't, it is sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this, please, he will answer, I don't know how to read. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Our second reading can be found on page 1010. Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, on page 1010. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, 
Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honour your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me as Corban, that is, a a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we uh, remain standing, let's uh, pray together. We pray, Heavenly Father, that these words we've been singing would indeed be true for us, that we would be those who stand here in awe of you, uh, have a right response to you, that we wouldn't, as we've been thinking, simply be going through the motions, uh, but have a heartfelt response to you that is uh, genuine um, and real uh, at the very deepest parts of our being. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do sit down. Let me uh, add my own welcome to that of Pete's uh, earlier uh, in the service. It's uh, very good to see you here. And um, as uh, Pete said, we continue looking through uh, one particular section of Isaiah. This uh, morning, we're in Isaiah chapter 29. I think you'll find it very hard, uh, very hard, very good to have it open in front of you. Page 712 is the uh, page number. Uh, Fans of the band Westlife might well know the words of their song, If Your Heart's Not In It. For the rest of us, this is how they go. (laughs) I'm missing you, girl, even though you're right here by my side. Because lately it seems the distance between us is growing too wide. But if your heart's not in it for real, please don't try to fake what you don't feel. If love's already gone, it's not fair to lead me on. It's a ballad telling the story of a relationship where for one party, all the lovers gone. They're still together in the same room, but for one, their heart's not in it. Now, for the Christian, that is very easy for that to be the case in the Christian life with our God. If you see the Christian life as a set of rules and regulations of kind of religious duty, then what's going in your, on in your heart makes very little difference. You can go through the motions. But if you see the Christian life as a relationship with Almighty God, and that is how the Bible see it, sees it, then if your heart's not in it, it's over. That can so easily happen for the Christian. We can so easily, as we've heard helpfully already this morning, turn up every Sunday and go through the motions and no one else would know deep down that our heart's not in it. Uh, The person sitting next to us probably wouldn't suspect anything, but deep down in our hearts we know we'd rather be somewhere else doing something different. 
Now look, all Christians, most Christians maybe I should say, go through that kind of struggle from time to time, just as with most marriages, even good healthy marriages, from time to time you don't feel anything very much. But when it's been like that for years, I remember a guy in his late 20s or 30s from the previous church I was involved in asking to meet with me. He said to me when we met, Paul, years ago, uh, when I was at university, I'd have done anything for Jesus, gone anywhere for him. Uh, Knowing him was really exciting, but now, and for some years now, I really don't feel anything towards Jesus Christ. And I was most surprised when he said that to me because he was always there on Sunday and he was fully involved in the life of the church, but his heart wasn't in it. It can happen to a whole church family looking in from the outside. There's plenty of activity, but there's no heart. I've preached in churches like that. Now look, we must be sure that we don't become like that, either as individual Christians or as a church family. Indeed, Isaiah chapter 29 asks us to look honestly at our hearts to be sure that we haven't even become, begun to become like that. Now, the key verse in this section is in verse 13, uh, where you see the Lord says of his people, these people come near to me with their mouth, they say the right words, and they honour me with their lips, they sing the right songs, but their hearts are far from me. You might have noticed when Jenny read the reading for us, the second reading, Jesus quotes this very verse in Mark chapter 7, and we'll look at that a bit later. For now, let's go to the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. We read, Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. It begins with a woe. This section in Isaiah is a series of woes. We saw one last week. We'll see them as we go on. Indeed, last week in chapter 28, verse 1, we read, we read, we read woe to Ephraim. Now, if you weren't here last week, or if you were, here's a little reminder. Ephraim were Judah's near neighbours and cousins. And you'll remember, chapter 28 was a warning to Judah not to be like Ephraim, for Ephraim had turned from God's word. Through his word, the Lord had told the people of Ephraim to trust him and not to put their trust in other things to protect them. You'll remember, perhaps from last week, the whole world was under the threat of the mighty Assyrian army. Ephraim, this nation, was terrified of being overrun by that military machine as it swept south. And so the Lord told Ephraim to stand firm and to trust the Lord. But rather than trust the Lord, Ephraim had put their trust in an alliance with Syria, thinking that if they stood with Syria, if they made this alliance with Syria, they would be able to stand against the Assyrians. So they didn't listen to God's word. They didn't put their trust in the Lord to deliver them. And the result was that they were defeated and destroyed by the Assyrian army. And so through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord said to his people, Judah, don't do what Ephraim did. Don't trust to other things when danger comes your way, or you too will be destroyed just as they were. No, put your trust in me, said the Lord. We saw that last week. And the Lord needed to say that to his people because Judah was fearful of the Assyrian army. Everybody was. And Judah was tempted to trust the Egyptians. We saw that in chapter 31, verse 1 last week. Now, the important thing is that last week we thought of ways that we do the same. It's not just a history lesson. That might have sounded like that. We do the same. 
We too live in a scary world. We live under the shadow of death, as Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah chapter 9. The great thing is that in the gospel we have the answer to death. Jesus Christ died for our sins to put us right with God. He was risen from the dead. He defeated death and can guarantee life beyond the grave. We have in Christ the answer to our greatest enemy, death. But even though we know this great truth, we all the time are being tempted not to trust the Lord, but to put our trust in other things to rescue us. And as I suggested last week, money is the big thing we put our trust in. We put aside some money for a rainy day. And while we hope it will never happen, sometimes we just allow ourselves to think ahead to the day when our health deteriorates and we cope with it by thinking, I've got some savings in the bank. I've taken out private health insurance. I'll be okay. And you see, when we're thinking like that, we're not trusting the Lord to get us through that struggle. We're trusting money. And as I say that, I'm not thinking of the unbeliever. I'm thinking of the Christian, the real committed Christian. I am all the while finding myself thinking that something other than the Lord is the thing that I need that will rescue me when trouble and hardship come bearing down upon me. Now last week, through his word, the Lord said to us, don't do that. Don't trust in these other things. Ephraim did it and it resulted in their destruction and them being taken off into exile. But desperately, the people of God in Isaiah's day had begun to do that. And it all began with them turning from God's word. This is the crucial thing for us to get clear, not only this morning, but as we look through this series. Turning from God's word is turning from the Lord. And turning from God's word is the first step to a series of steps resulting in us walking away from the Lord and putting our trust in other things. That's what we'll see in chapters 28 to 31 of Isaiah. Now that is why, so it's quite a long uh, recap, but that is why this woe is addressed to Ariel in verse 1. You can see from the second line of verse 1 that Ariel is Jerusalem. It's the city where David settled. And you might ask, well, why didn't he just say woe to Jerusalem? Well, he's got to play on words here. And you can see from the footnote at the end of verse 2 that Ariel means altar hearth. Now, this is the point. It's not really very complicated. It's just a play on words. I love playing around with words, and so did Isaiah. In the city of Jerusalem, there was much activity around the altar in the temple, The fires of the altar were burning all day long because the people of Judah were bringing sacrifices to the temple. And so if you were to go to Jerusalem for a holiday back in Isaiah's day, or if you were passing through the city back then on a tour of the Middle East, as you visited the temple, you would see an altar, you would see at the altar what looked like a religion that was strong and healthy and full of vitality. The fires of the altar were burning. There was so much religious activity going on, people coming in and out all the time, bringing their sacrifices. The altar hearth, Ariel, was always burning all day long. Yet, verse 2, this is what the Lord says, and this is where we see the play on the word Ariel. Yet I will besiege Ariel, she will mourn and lament. She will become to me like an altar hearth. She will become like an Ariel, the whole city will. And the Lord is warning here that he's going to come upon Jerusalem in judgment. As she, the city of Jerusalem, 
will burn up. The whole city will look like an altar hearth, an aerial, the whole city on fire. The Lord says to Jerusalem, verse 3, I will encamp around against you all around I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you brought low you will speak from the ground your speech will mumble out of the dust your voice will uh, will come ghost-like from the earth out of the dust your speech will whisper see it's a declaration of judgment from God upon his people for Jerusalem's religious activity was a travesty exactly what we've already seen in verse 13 they were saying the right things and singing the right things but their hearts weren't in it and that's a disaster in a relationship even though you're right here by my side the distance between us is growing too wide if your heart's not in it for real please don't try and fake what you don't feel love's already gone and Jerusalem they were just going through the motions it was a sham it was all show Judah continue to bring their sacrifices to God, but as we saw last week, they've already turned from the Lord in taking no notice of his word. And so while they continue with their religious activity, their heart's not in it. While there seems to be so much going on, they are far from the Lord. And whatever it looks like on the outside, no matter how much religious activity, no matter how many sacrifices they burn on the altar, they have ignored God's word, refusing to trust him, They've turned to other things. And so they are now under God's judgment. And the Lord says to them, verse 1, Woe, woe if you turn from me and then try to cover it up by all this religious activity. Now that word woe is a very powerful word. It's a word that Isaiah loves to use and we see it again and again in this section. It's a powerful word because it's a word that would be heard at a funeral. It's a word of lament. As people were, were weeping, they would be saying, whoa. So the Lord is saying, if you turn from me, it is the death of you. And so here are God's people under a dreadful sentence of judgment. But amazingly, that's not the end of the story. It never is with our God, for he is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And so in verses five to eight, the Lord tells his people that the mighty Assyrians, who they are so fearful of, the mighty Assyrians are themselves going to be defeated by him. See verse 5. But your many enemies will become like fine dust, the ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. Do you see how powerful this Lord is against the Assyrians? Verse 7, then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her and her fortress and besiege her, will be as it is with a dream, with a vision in the night. This section should be a great encouragement to God's people not to fear the world as it comes bearing down upon us, not to turn to something else for protection. The Lord is more powerful than anything that is coming upon us. And I love that at the end of verse 7 and into verse 8. It will be as it is with a dream, with a vision in the night, as when a hungry man dreams that he's eating, but he awakens and his hunger remains. 
What the Lord is saying is all those who are against God people will be like a hungry man dreaming in the night that he's eating a banquet. You know, one of those great dreams. You think, oh, wonderful. Look at this fantastic food. And, and he's eating. And in, while he's asleep in his dream, he's, he's gorging himself. His belly is full and he's so satisfied in his dream. But of course, the moment he wakes up, the first thing he feels is hunger pangs in his empty stomach. Just been a dream. The Lord is saying to his people, your enemies are in a dream world when they think that coming against you and having success against you will satisfy their desires. He says one day they are going to wake from their dream and they will wake up to a nightmare, the nightmare of coming face to face with God in judgment. So you see this little section in verses five to eight, the Lord is saying to his people, even though they've turned from him, don't fear the world. Scary as it looks, don't fear the world. Trust me, for I'm greater than the world, more powerful than the world, and I will judge the world. You can trust me. That's the message to Judah. But desperately, as Isaiah wrote that wonderful message of hope, desperately, God's people wouldn't listen to God's word. Amazing, this amazing and reassuring word. And we see that in verses 9 to 12. Verse 9, be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. The language of verse 9 of being drunk from wine and staggering all over the place. Remember, it takes us back to last week, chapter 28, and the problem with Ephraim. And as we've already seen, the problem with Ephraim was that they refused to listen to God's word. And that's how it is for the people of Judah, God's people of Isaiah's day. You see verse 10, the Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He's covered your heads, the seers. The prophets in Judah's day can't see a thing. They've got nothing to say. They can't see clearly, so they're supposed to be proclaiming God's word, but they haven't got anything to say anymore. See, that's what happens when we turn from God's word. We have nothing to say. I've noticed it in this land, have you? The national church has turned from God's word, and so when our national church leaders have a platform to speak to the nation, they say nothing, really. Just this week, I was reminiscing with a friend about the Queen's Diamond Jubilee celebrations. What a terrific weekend that was a couple of years ago. The flotilla on the Thames, the party at the palace, the beacons that were lit throughout the land. And then there was the service at St Paul's Cathedral on the Monday. With millions of people tuned in, the Archbishop of Canterbury had a chance to declare the wonder of the gospel. And he said absolutely nothing. It's verse 10, isn't it? He sealed your eyes, the prophets. The church has turned from God's word and so we hear nothing. Uh, Many experience that over the summer. I'm looking forward to the summer holidays. I guess you are as well. And you know, every, almost every year, I think it has happened every year since I've been here, in September, when we're all back together again as a church family, after many have been away on their summer vacation, someone, at least someone, will say to me, I went to church when I was on holiday in wherever it was they went, and the Bible wasn't opened. Or the Bible was referred to, but it wasn't really taught properly. We've given up on God's word. We've nothing to say. Sometimes the Bible is read and, and, you know, referred to, but it has no edge and bite to it. 
Richard Bewes, the former rector of All Souls Langham Place, a church in the heart of London's West End. Uh, when I was on the staff there, Richard Bewes said once, there was a time when people went to the theatre to, enter- to be entertained and to the church to hear a prophetic word. Now people go to the theatre and hear a prophetic word and go to the church for entertainment. A oh, very helpful comment. And I've experienced that. Sermons that aren't boring, but they have no weight to them. They are packed with funny stories and lightweight, sugary platitudes, but they have no substance. And then when I go to the theatre, I am really made to think. See, that is desperate, and that's verse 10. Because we have turned from God's word, our prophets see nothing. They have nothing to say. And so the people of God in Isaiah's day didn't hear the word of God. And when they did, when Isaiah spoke to them, they didn't listen. That's verse 11. For you, you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to them, read this please, he will answer, I can't. It's sealed. And what a pathetic response that is. I can't be bothered to break the seal. It's the tragic picture of people who can read the word of God but can't be bothered to. They can't be bothered to take down off the shelf the the Gideon New Testament that they were given at school. And so into this situation where people are not listening to the word of God, where they are simply going through the motions of religion, he says to them, verse 13, these people come near to me with their mouth, they honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. See, as soon as we dispense with the word of God, we'll be left only with man-made rules to follow. The moment we dispense with the word of God, our worship becomes absolutely meaningless and abhorrent to God. As soon as we dispense with the word of God, our hearts will drift far from God. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus quotes this verse in Mark chapter 7. Turn with me, if you will, then to Mark chapter 7 and see how Jesus uses these words. Page 1010, the second of the two readings uh, that Jenny read for us just earlier. Page 1010. You'll see uh, the quote from Isaiah uh, chapter 29 there in verses 6 and 7. And after quoting Isaiah, Jesus said, Mark chapter 7, verse 8, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to him, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And then look down to verse 13. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. See the problem? Tradition, replacing God's word, that's the problem. And once again, it is so contemporary. I can think of two conversations I've had in the last two or three months with two different people, both senior clerics in this diocese. On both occasions, I was speaking to them about the important issues of truth and of doctrine. To the first, I was questioning why he was doing something that was against the Bible's teaching, and he said to me, that's the tradition I come from. Tradition nullifying the word of God. 
With the other, I was discussing the central truth of salvation through faith in Christ alone. We could not have been talking about a more important issue. And he said to me, Paul, there are many other traditions in the Church of England, not only yours. But I wasn't talking about tradition. I was engaging with what the Bible said about how people are saved. And he wanted to talk about tradition. It is tragic. But on both occasions, these men would not engage with the Bible because they were bound up with tradition. That is verse 13. You nullify the word of God by your tradition. And so in the Church of England, just like Judah in Isaiah's day, there can be lots going on, lots of activity, lots of religion, while the word of God is being ignored. And as we saw last time, as I've mentioned this time, when we ignore God's word, we are rejecting God himself. And that brings us under God's judgment. Now let's be sure as we close that we can do the same. It is very easy to look at the wider church and see where this applies to others. It is always harder to look at yourself, ourselves, and see where we might be falling into this. But we need to do that. We too can be doing loads of stuff and have our hearts far from God. It is very easy for us to be active in church things. It's very easy for us to be saying to ourselves, I've done this, that and and the other in the church and yet for us not to be listening to God's word. And I think it's especially subtle for us here at Christ Church Forward because we do emphasise listening to the word of God. And so we can come to church and the sermon can be preached and we can be part of a small group where the Bible is studied and we can still not actually be listening to God's word, not so that it affects our lives. Not so that we actually keep learning to trust the Lord and not put our trust in other things. And once that happens, we are only a very small step from beginning to walk away from the Lord altogether, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks. And so I want to ask of us this morning, as the Lord looks at us today, could he be singing of us, I'm missing you even though you're right here by my side? Because lately it seems the distance between us is growing too wide. But if your heart's not in it for real, please don't try to fake what you don't feel if love's already gone. And I want to ask if the Lord says of us this morning, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, these people come near to me with their mouth, they honour me with their lips, and they work, but, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Let's pray together. Our Father, we've uh, heard your word and we've uh, heard the challenge to us here at Forward. And we beg you to rescue us from becoming like your people of old who were doing so much, the altar hearth burning brightly all day long and yet they were very far from you in their hearts. If we as a church family have begun to move anywhere near that, would you grab hold of our hearts now and shake us to come back to you. For those of us individually who are sitting here feeling that's me, 
Would you grab hold of our hearts in a way that means we, grab, uh, we come back to you straight away? We ask you, Heavenly Father, to be very merciful to us that while this is a hard word to hear, we know that it's a word given to us because you love us and because you long to restore the relationship to where it should be. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the death that he died, bringing us forgiveness and a fresh start, which we want to have in you this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a chance to uh, give money when we sing this uh, last song. Please uh, don't go through the motions of just dropping stuff in the bag. Uh, We really are not after money. Um, So particularly if you're a guest here, don't feel embarrassed about passing the bag along. It's what we do, but it's not a tradition that you have to follow. We're going to sing uh, to God be the glory, great things he's done. And may it be that as we sing this song of the wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our hearts would be stirred and that we wouldn't simply be doing what we always do. Let's stand as we sing together.